poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is a longtime professional poker player, comedian, and the host of the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, Clayton Fletcher. Clayton's path to CPG was a little different from most folks. One of my all-time favorite guests, Anton Wig, reached out to me directly and said, basically, if you don't have Clayton Fletcher on your show in the near future, then you are dumber than a dummy. All right, that's not an exact quote, but Anton being Anton basically had a great read that Clayton would drop fireballs and greatness bombs on CPG, and that is exactly what went down. Clayton's upbringing and path into the world of poker is really too awesome for me to describe in the intro, and I'd much rather you hear it from the man himself who's about to give you all the details. Let's just say that if you love great poker stories, you're about to be in for a treat. In today's episode with Clayton Fletcher, you're going to learn how to use your anxiety at the poker table as a superpower, why Clayton's comedy career would be in a totally different place had it not been for poker, Clayton's amazing and unique poker origin story, and much, much more. And before you dive into this conversation with Clayton Fletcher, just want to let you know that if you would like to join the Greatness Village, you can do so at www.greatnessvillage.com. Sign up for the email newsletter. The first link will be a link to join our Slack community. If you're looking for engaged, high-level poker discussions on an every single day basis. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you the comedian slash poker pro with the best website on the face of the planet, the one and only Clayton Fletcher. Clayton, welcome to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast, sir. How are you? Uh, thank you so much, Brad. I'm a huge fan. I, I listen to as many episodes as I can. You crank them out like gangbusters, so I can't quite keep up with you, but uh, it's a, uh, an honor to join the uh, ranks of uh, you know, your esteemed list of guests. So thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure, and I, I will give all the credit to my guests. I, I lean on them. I just ask the questions. They provide most of the greatness bombs on this show. So they make my life a lot, e- uh, a lot easier. I-, I can't imagine doing like a monologue uh, three days a week. I think that would be, that's like my worst nightmare. Tell me, so I know that you're a comedian and a poker player. So I guess tell me about how that intersection kind of happened. You know, the, the story of you getting involved with playing cards and also the comedy. Sure. Um, as a boy, we used to play. I have two brothers, and my mother was a serious poker player herself. We even had a, a fairly high stakes home game at our house. My mother would invite, uh, you know, local gamblers. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and my mother used to invite people over, and you know, nine times out of ten, take their money. Uh, <laughs> it was a seven card stud back then. I'm in my forties, 
So my uh, my poker experience predates the uh, No Limit Hold'em boom that basically took place around the co- the turn of the millennium. Uh, so yeah, I grew up on seven card stud and a little bit of five card draw, but not too much of that. Mostly they played stud, and uh, my mother would allow my brothers and me to gamble our allowance with her around the kitchen table. My father would play sometimes too, but he was a jazz musician and his focus was a lot more on uh, after dinner. He just wanted to go downstairs to the uh, music room and practice his bass. But yeah, so my brothers and I would stay and play uh, poker with my mom. And she said we didn't have to play for real money, but if we gambled our allowance, we didn't get another allowance until the following week. So it's kind of a great way, actually a great way to teach children about money. And so if you spend your money or lose your money or gamble away your money, uh, more doesn't magically fall from the trees. So uh, at the same time, so my mother was teaching me uh, about poker and also other games. We played a lot of backgammon, chess, uh, this French card game called Mealborn. We used to play quite a bit and usually not for money. But of course, as you know, Brad, you, you can't play poker unless you're playing for something because yes. otherwise everybody would just always go to the end and see who wins right yeah it's it's very boring um not very fun playing for nothing can can we go back for just a moment here because like i, I my mind is a little blown that <laughs> as a child your mother is running seven card stud home games um and you and i are of similar age so you know this is probably like 1988 ish 89 yeah let's say mid 80s yeah about then yeah so how and how the hell is your mom involved in cards in the mid 80s like there's got to be something something there right yeah so my mother was super interested in games of all kinds and so uh you know in a, a part of it was she would meet people through my dad so my dad was in the jazz world so uh, he was a professional musician. He did studio work. He also played for like Broadway shows when they would come to Baltimore. So he was a pit orchestra musician, but his true love was jazz. And so there is a bit of overlap between uh, renegade lifestyles, right? So if you're a, a, a freelance jazz musician or you're a gambler or, you know, you I don't know, you you bet on horses or I guess the modern equivalent of this type of personality would be like a crypto trader or an options trader, someone who's not afraid to assume a lot of risk, uh, both financially and just in life. Uh, so we, we came across people and eventually through networking or whatever, we developed a, a roster of players. At the same time, I had an uncle who owned a bar. And so a lot of the people that would come into the bar would sit around the bar playing gin for money or poker for money. And so sometimes those individuals would end up getting invited to my house. So if you can imagine my life growing up, we've got gambling going on upstairs <laughs> and jazz music going on downstairs. So uh, definitely not uh, a typical childhood by any stretch of anyone's imagination. Sounds like a dream to me. I got to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a dream to me. So the poker makes makes a lot of sense and, and the comedy actually i think makes a lot of sense too and um so tell me like growing up what was your your aspiration you know living that sort of unique childhood experience yeah well much to everyone's dismay i wanted to be cal ripken so uh <laughs> for those who don't follow baseball he's probably the most famous baltimore oriole 
of all time. And he was my childhood hero growing up. So while my mother was trying to teach me how to play poker and other games, and my father was helping me learn music, my real focus was I wanted to play baseball. So I did little league and then I got into baseball in high school. And I just, I was always really a little too focused on baseball considering I had a much better uh, chance of success in these other areas. But you know, when you're a kid, you just want to do what you love. So my first love was definitely baseball and still is. I now play fantasy baseball and never miss an Orioles game, no matter how bad the team is. Um, but yeah, I would, I would focus on, on that first and foremost, but in the back of my mind, I was like, well, you know, if this baseball thing doesn't work out, I could always be a musician. So by the time I was about 12 or 13 years old, my dad was to the point where he was getting more gigs than he could take. And the ones that he thought I could handle, he would send me out. Uh, he wouldn't tell the, the person that was hiring him on the phone. Uh, my son is only 12. <laughs> I remember one time he got called to play a chorus line and uh, we had the bass book at home because my dad had played the show before and still had the book. So uh, he gave me a lot of prep. He helped me learn the book, um, you know, just to be able to, to play, to go down into the pit and play the bass part for the orchestra in, in, a, in a chorus line. So he said, you know, I'm, I'm booked that night. It was a call to be a sub at a local theater that was doing a production of a chorus line. And he said, my son can handle it. So, um, you know, just whatever you were going to pay me, you can pay him instead. And uh, he'll be there at 630. So imagine the looks on the on the conductor's face <laughs> when I showed up a 12 year old boy, uh, barely the same size as the electric bass. Uh, and like, who are you? And I said, I'm Clayton. I'm Ashton Fletcher's son. And they said, can you play that thing? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> where do I plug in? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I'm sure they felt no anxiety about that whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. But by intermission, they were comfortable and they realized that, that I could do it. And then I started getting other similar gigs at little theaters around town. So part of my high school experience was going to school during the day and then uh, semi-regularly working in uh, pit orchestras at night, which actually my dad didn't enjoy that work. He wanted to play jazz. He didn't want to read the notes that somebody else already wrote. So my dad didn't have the same respect for Marvin Hamlish as I did. He wanted to play, you know, with the, with the improvisers at the jazz club. So he was more than happy to send those gigs my way, especially if they didn't pay that great. So, uh, it, it kind of worked out for both of us. Cause then I was getting on the job experience and realizing like, if you get good enough at something, you can actually make money from it. So kind of lessons that people generally learn later in life. I kind of learned around the age of 11 or 12. Yeah. I don't know why, but I'm feeling older already in this conversation <laughs> i'm like man me me and you and i are the same age and you're like 12 going around <laughs> playing uh you know doing side gigs to earn extra money and gambling like at your house with your parents and a bunch of musicians um uh, I, don't, I don't know if there's a ton of that going on these days no i don't think so i think that uh nowadays the parental mindset is more we have to protect the children and hover over them and make sure they don't fall off the swing set. And like, for me, it was more like sink or swim, buddy. It's a tough world out there. You got to find your way. So uh, it's just a different, uh, just a different philosophy of, of what role parents should play. I mean, my parents did their best to keep me safe, but other than that, it was like, go out there make mistakes, learn and, and, you know, feel what you need to feel so that you can learn, learn better in the future. 
Yeah, I I have a 12-year-old daughter now, a 12 and 10-year-old. And short story about me when I was growing up. So I went to middle school in downtown Atlanta. And one day I was in, I can't remember, the office, I guess is what they, they called it uh, at school. Like, just go to the office, right? There's <laughs> this one place that's the office. And they had a cork board. And there was a flyer that said, make up to $100 a day. And I was like, oh, what's this? You know, I'm, again, I'm probably 12 years old. There's a number. I call this number and a guy answers. And like, we talk, my mom talks to him. And basically the deal was, okay, I'm going to give you a box of 15 pieces of candy, basically like peanut brittle, um, stuff like that, like boxes of candy. And you're going to get in my van and I'm just going to drop you off at a neighborhood and you're going to go door to door trying to sell this candy to people. And then like, whenever you need me to pick you up, ask somebody to borrow their phone because there's no cell phones back then and page me basically. <laughs> so like, you know, just imagine a 12 year old in a foreign neighborhood. You have no idea where you're at. You have no idea how to get home. You don't have a cell phone. You got nothing just knocking on people's door, trying to sell candy. I cannot imagine a world where I would let my daughter do that today. But somehow, I don't know how my parents let me do that. But I did that for like a year. And that was my first taste of like working and making money while I was in middle school. Um, it's What could possibly go wrong, right? It's, it's a miracle that <laughs> something didn't happen. And it wasn't like it was just me in the van. It was like, a full van of kids my age that this dude is just dropping off and wow. like circling around. It was thinking back on it. Like it's pretty insane for sure. Very insane. But yeah, maybe times have changed. Maybe people have changed or maybe we're just more aware of all the dangers out there. But you know, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm very happy that nothing bad happened to you. It sounds like you were put in a pretty dangerous spot there. <laughs> yes, it, it was very dangerous. Uh, I'm very fortunate. But um, yeah, going, going back to you and your journey. So, you know, you're playing in orchestras. You're hustling. You're earning money. What, what was next after, you know, you realized that Cal Ripken just wasn't going to be in the cards? Yeah, so sometimes around sometime around high school, uh, there was uh, a part of me that wanted to get out from under the stage and instead get onto the stage. So uh, I started auditioning for acting roles in similar productions uh, for the ones that I, similar to the ones that I had been playing the bass for. And uh, I started getting cast in, in roles. So... Then I realized that I actually wanted to be an actor and not a musician so much. Although later in my career, I would learn that being able to do both was an asset. I spent two years on tour playing Buddy Holly in the Buddy Holly story, which combined my acting skills and my musical talent. So it ended up being uh, for the best. But for many years, I just kind of put the music aside and focused on learning to act. I went to school for theater. I got a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. In, in music and theater. And so I was, uh, you know, I was going down that path. And then once I moved to New York, I started doing stand-up. So that to me was the, uh, the game changer. I was like, okay, so all the things I've been looking for all my life, do I want to be 
uh, on stage or under the stage making music or singing or acting. This was it. Uh, there's nothing that I've ever done that compares to standing in front of a packed house and trying to make everybody laugh. It's just the greatest rush that you can ever feel. It's like a roller coaster that never stops going down. Can, it's can you describe it? The the feeling when you're on stage or like early on, I'm sure it was. I mean, I, I know you, you grew up in that world, but it still has to be pretty nerve wracking. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that can prepare you for doing stand up. I mean, uh, you you start out thinking, oh, how much different from doing a part in a play can this actually be? And then you find out quite quickly it's not at all the same. <laughs> it's totally different because this is just you and a microphone and everyone sitting there having two drinks and not that patiently waiting for you to say something funny. So it's a very, very high pressure situation. And I learned how to cope with being nervous and actually using my nerves to my advantage uh, is a very important lesson that I've learned from many years of doing stand-up. But yeah, the rush that you get when you write a joke in the afternoon and then you do it that same night and everybody laughs and claps, you're just like, it, you kind of feel like God for half a second, <laughs> you know, and when it doesn't go well, it, it hurts just as much. Yeah. So it's high consequences too, you know, high pressure and then emotional roller coaster. Tell Absolutely. me, uh, tell me about using your nerves to your advantage. Um, what does that look like? Okay. So I figured out somewhere along the line that all the times in your life when you're most nervous are times when the outcome matters. That's what makes us nervous, right? Like the first time you ever asked a girl on a date or you know, the day you got your SAT scores in the mail, whatever the, the big moment in your life is, whatever's most important to you, your nerves are, I guess, commensurate with that level of importance. So if you don't care, you're not going to feel nervous and it doesn't matter. But what I've learned is that being nervous actually is the body's response to the fact that something important is happening. And therefore, your nerves actually give you energy and they give you focus. And being nervous is not a bad thing. The best shows I've ever had were actually the ones where I was most nervous. Like maybe I was going on television or opening for a famous superstar comedian or, you know, all the kind of the highlights in my comedy career, they feel similar to the time the uh, ESPN cameras were on me in the final four tables of the main event. It's the same feeling. It's like, this matters a lot. And so my heart is pounding, my palms are sweating, but my brain is laser focused on trying to get the job done. Absolutely. And uh, my, my, friend, my good friend, Adam Creek, Olympic gold medalist, I've talked about him a number of times on the pod, but this is something that he echoed as well. You know, when they were preparing to race for a gold medal, um, one of the things that he would be chanting is thank you to his nerves. Thank you for, thank you for feeling nervous. Thank you for the anxiety. Thank you for this energy because yeah, that energy helps propel you and is, can either be an asset or a detriment to the outcome. And so when you accept it and realize like, Oh, I'm nervous because it's, you know, because I'm going to need energy and I need to perform very well right now. When you harness it that way, it's just good things happen, right? Absolutely. Now, that's, that's what you learn from doing stand-up because otherwise you're just going to die on stage. If being nervous, if you can't figure out how to turn your nerves into something good, it's an energy, right? It's a, 
it's a kinetic energy that's kind of coursing through your veins and you have to put it somewhere and you'll see like newer comedians or amateur comedians they either can't stop using the f word or they can't keep their feet still or they can't stop grabbing the microphone cord that's just the nerves trying to go somewhere and the more experienced comedians we still feel very nervous i mean especially if it's a big important show of course you're going to feel nervous or you're not even alive but what we've learned is how to turn that energy into uh, a higher level of emotion and attachment to whatever I'm trying to express with my mouth or bigger facial expressions or just more commitment to the bit, something that's actually going to help me. And so I do the same thing in poker when I'm in a big spot and I feel nervous and my heart is pounding, I kind of convert that energy into just focusing that much harder on doing my best to make the best decision I can with the limited information that I have. And when I'm really nervous, I don't miss anything. When I'm playing in a lower stakes tournament or I didn't get enough sleep or it's really early in level one and it doesn't feel like anything matters yet, that's when I make more mistakes. Of course, because your your attention is not on the matter at hand and you know it's it's other places. And when you're not in the zone, you're just going to make some kind of sloppy mistakes. And I think that's true for all poker players all the time. It's like, uh, there's a saying that like, it's not enough to know how to play well. You also have to play well too. I think that like, that's a trap that a lot of poker players fall into is like, well, I'm here and this is what I do. So I'm just going to show up and get paid by playing my hands or putting in my volume and like, no, you actually have to try, like you actually have to play well too. That's why you're able to make a living. Um, you can't just, you can't just, uh, sit down, fire up a movie on Netflix and watch it in between hands because like, that's a good way to be a losing poker player. That's a good way to make a lot of mistakes, good way to miss edges. So like you need that nervous energy. Um, it, it's very, very helpful and you, you just have to maintain it. I, I think that's probably the, the most difficult part for poker players is like you got to maintain that level of focus for like a whole day, right? Right. And when I do stand up, it's usually like 45 minutes or less. So 12 hours of poker is is a lot more sustained nervous energy that needs to happen. Uh, yeah, you don't want to get too comfortable. But that's why sometimes at the table, not every time I play, but sometimes at the table, if I have a, a fun-loving, a friendly table, uh, I like to engage my opponents. It's not, you know, some people think, oh, well, if I, if I laugh at his joke, I'm going to give away some kind of nervous tick that's then going to you know, make him play better against me. That's really not why I like to, to goof off at the table. I just like to have fun as often as possible. I mean, I'll make jokes at the grocery store. I don't care. So, uh, but yeah, I find that it helps me stay engaged if I can have a stimulating conversation with, with my opponents or, you know, just even, even if you're just talking about something mundane like sports or the weather, to me, that helps, helps my brain engage in a different way than if I try to play that robotic style that is uh, so common on, on poker on TV nowadays that 
has actually caused us to move the main event from ESPN to a little known network called CBS Sports Network. Uh, <laughs> I blame some of the robots for that, actually, because it's not as fun to to watch. But I can tell you this, Brad, if I'm if I'm really nervous and I am 100 percent focused on playing my best because the outcome matters to me, I can beat most regs on autopilot any day of the week it's just it's like if if you had turbo if we both had the same car but mine has turbo and yours doesn't you know i'm gonna win yeah then you win yeah and you mentioned something just now that that i that, that i've been thinking about a ton and you know the joking the laughter the good conversation with people and how you enjoy that at the poker table and I've been asking myself, like, what is it that I like so much about that? Because I'm the same. Like, I think that, like, I'm there to play cards. And also, everybody should have fun while we do it. Because, I mean, we are spending our life force here sitting around the table. And, like, it doesn't seem super exciting to just be a robot for 10 hours straight. Um, but I think it's connection. I think really you know, that's your gift and that's what you enjoy is connecting with other human beings. And that's why that resonates with you so much at the poker table, because, you know, just talking about the weather, talking about sports, chit chatting, you're connecting with other people. And I think that that's, it's just a component of poker that is pretty underrated. And, um, you know, that, that's why I am outgoing at the poker table too. That's why I do the podcast. That's why, you know, private coaching matters to me and building my business and all of that stuff is like, I just enjoy connecting with people. That's what I really love. And in the live poker space, we have the opportunity to connect. Whereas in a, like online poker, it's just kind of uh, <laughs> not many connections going on unless we count like emojis or throwing poop at somebody if they beat us. Yeah. And on some of the sites, you can't even do that anymore. So <laughs> uh, like the site that I play on a lot, WSOP.com, They've disabled chat, at least in New Jersey. So I, I can't even, you know, say anything to my opponents. So you don't have you don't even get that level of connection on on some of the sites nowadays. But yeah, there's nothing like just feeling uh, all right. So we are competing, and the winner is going to be the player who has all the chips at the end of the tournament. Like we all know this, but that doesn't mean that we have to be at war mentally with each other uh i feel like especially between hands while the dealer's shuffling it's a great time to just you know kind of get to know each other and uh you ever see like two great athletes maybe like mma fighters or boxers and you know their their goal is to like beat the other one unconscious <laughs> but the way they act before and after the match in many cases can be like mutual respect shake hands sportsmanship you know, all that stuff is uh, important to me. And, you know, probably just goes back to the vibe that I felt at the kitchen table when we all played poker together. Everyone's trying to win, but we're also a family. And you can have love and competition at the same time. Absolutely. And that, you know, that's a greatness bomb. And I think in MMA fights, it's more after than before. <laughs> Because the, <laughs> the before, you know, it's very hypish, right? Like they got to sell the tickets, they got to right, build right, the rivalry right. up, sell the story. And then afterwards, it's like, yeah, 
just kidding, guys. We were friends the whole time. Like we we had this level of mutual respect and admiration. We hug and kiss each other at the conclusion of the fight. And, and to me, to be honest, like that's what sports are about, right? It's like you have a mutual respect for facing worthy adversaries, and that doesn't that doesn't mean that you have to like be a dick to them. Uh, afterwards or even in the middle i mean like in mma fights they'll like uh fist bump each other in between rounds right or like at the beginning of the next round because it's ultimately a competition and the goal is to win but the goal is not to yeah just be an asshole to the other person um as much as you possibly can well you know you made a good point i think that really differentiates what sometimes happens in mma versus at the poker table is the mutual respect for a worthy opponent i think many times where you get the ugliness at the poker table is when for whatever reason one opponent feels like another is actually unworthy and so undeserving of respect and more deserving of vitriol and venom and you know just berating them and i think that that's destroying the game as we know it uh it should be fun to play, you know, whatever happened Absolutely. to don't tap the glass anyway, right? <laughs> I th- what just happened to be a cool person, you know, yeah. like just don't try to belittle people and make them feel small. Um, just be a, a decent human being. And yeah, like there, there are many problems with the way that poker is constructed right now. And um, yeah, I didn't even know that the WSOP had moved to CBS Sports. I guess that tells you how much I've kept up with you know, the WSOP over the last 10 years, but like some things have changed and some decisions were made that I think were not ultimately just not great decisions. I think that like not being able to turn your hand over when it's like heads up on the river, um, to talk, uh, removing gamesmanship out of the equation, making it to where like people just tank for like six minutes for each decision. I think, uh, I believe it was PS Hines, was the last WSOP that I actually watched and they live streamed that one. And I remember every hand taking like 20 minutes and thinking like, no, <laughs> sorry, this, this, this is not compelling TV to me. Like I, I'm not here to watch somebody think for five minutes um, about a decision that like they made in the first 15 seconds. And I think, yeah, that's just destroying the game. It, it's killing the product. It's making it not fun to watch People are not being engaged. They're not as drawn to the game as they used to be. And yeah, there really, there really needs to be a, a solution to this, you know, as soon as possible, in my opinion, if poker is to, yeah, if poker is to be great like it was. For sure. Um, you know, of course, I have, you know, with my media background, I have a lot of strong opinions about this. And, I, I definitely think we need a shot clock. I've played a, a lot of tournaments in Australia. Um, the Aussie Millions is one of my favorite stops like in the world. It's just a great city, Melbourne. And the, uh, the staff at the Crown Casino where the Aussie Millions is held is second to none, in my opinion. And one thing they do in a lot of the tournaments and in most of the cash games there is the dealer has a little just timer like you might have in your kitchen. And if the rules of the tournament are you get 30 seconds and maybe a few time extension chips 
for the really big spots. Uh, if the dealer feels like it's been about 20 seconds already, everyone can see the dealer grab that little kitchen timer, press start, and when 10 seconds are up, your hand is dead. We don't need to call the floor. We don't need another player at the table to say clock. It just keeps the game moving, and everyone there is comfortable with this. Not every single tournament is done that way. Like maybe some of the uh, some of the higher buy-ins, they don't they don't have that restriction, and then you can tank as long as you want or whatever. But I'd say a good half of them have this what they call a turbo format. But it really means that every single table has a shot clock, so it's not exact but it certainly speeds the game up and would be great for television because yeah, watching PS Hines think for 20 minutes about whether to fold Jack four under the gun or not, is not good television. I'm sorry. Yeah, it is not. And like the one thing that the reason why I think stalling is such a plague in MTTs is because oftentimes it's incentivized. That's the reality. It is. it is. Players are incentivized to stall because they can squeak into the money. Um, and yeah, they, they just make money by stalling. And so that's what they're going to do. So really, the way to combat it, in my opinion, is to remove that incentive. And yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. I think I have in- some thoughts on that too, actually, Brad. Uh some people think I'm absolutely insane. Cool, me too. So you go with yours, and then I'll give you my idea after you. I would love it if all tournaments were winner take all. Ooh, I mean, even one with a- even one with eight thousand players, because uh, you can still make a deal if you get to the final table and you guys say, "All right, there's eighty million dollars in the prize pool. You guys want to do an equity chop? You can still do that, right?" Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the TV producers wouldn't like that, but you could do it off the record and still play for the trophy or, or whatever. But I know that's never going to happen because players have gotten used to the gradual increase from 10% of the field, which used to be standard. Now it's closer to 15% uh, for many tournaments. And even on some online events that I've played in, it's greater than, than 15%. Now, remember, if you go from 10% to 15%, that's not a 5% increase. That's a 50% increase. That's a lot more people getting paid. And what it results in is a lot of tiny little prizes for barely eking into the money. And then players for years didn't like top-heavy payout structures. Okay, so if you guys don't want to do uh, winner-take-all, fine. At least make first place way more valuable than all the other places. Like... In the old days, the early days of the World Poker Tour, no one remembers this, but every tournament basically had 50% of the prize pool for first place. Nowadays, you're hard-pressed to find one with 20% for first place. But what it did is it, it forced people to play for first. That You have to incentivize the players playing for first. You just said, Brad, if you incentivize players uh, trying to ladder up because the difference is only a few hundred dollars anyway, or a few thousand dollars, depending on the buy-in, then you're going to get tanking. But if everybody's really trying to win the tournament, and by win, I mean first place, then you're going to see people take more chances, get after it more, because all the money is up there. you got to get all the chips. I think we've gotten a little bit too uh, participation (laughs) trophy-ish in in poker, and it's, it's resulted in 
um, players being really concerned about laddering and no one really cares about winning. Absolutely. And here, here's a funny thing that happens in poker. I don't know if you've thought about this, but like when you have a final table of nine players, right? They've all played a different number of hands to get there. <laughs> and like, yeah. that's just kind of weird. Like, it's just a weird thing that is somewhat unique to poker is like they've all they, they haven't all played the same number of hands. And like if you can get there in as few hands as possible, well, then that's good. Right. Because like you've taken less risk, your stack's been at risk fewer times. You've had less opportunity to bust. And, and again, like stalling becomes incentivized, whereas like in this winner take all type situation, you want to play more hands. Because, you know, you want the, the best players want more opportunities to, you know, gain more chips, build up their stack and give themselves a real shot at taking the tournament down. So, yeah, it, it's just this it's a weird incentive type situation. My idea, one of my ideas would be to basically penalize players and take blinds if they take over a certain amount of time. So especially online where this is like easy to implement, like if a player times down and, you know, they take more time than more time than they're allocated and go into their time bank or whatever, like basically their stack just starts losing chips after like 10 seconds. So you don't make a decision in 10 seconds without engaging your time bank. Then you just start losing like one blind every 20 seconds or whatever and then now the short stacks, like they can't tank because they're just going to lose their stack. They're going to go broke by tanking. So I think that that could be a thing that helps with the stalling, kind of removes the incentive. Uh, there's a number of things I think are in play, but just the right people need to hear it so that they can start experimenting and executing and figure out a better way. Because I think right now, it's just not it's not the best way right now and we can improve on that process well the problem right now is that the uh players are the customers and this is the only sport that you can think of where the players are the customers so if you're trying to make the game better but you're asking the players like if you asked major league baseball players uh how many innings do you guys want to play they're not going to say nine they're going to say, I want to play six innings, make my $20 million, and go home to my wife. Yeah. Uh, what about steroids? You guys want right. steroids? Yeah, yeah, let's yeah, do it. Yeah, let's use them, yeah. It's like that's what we've done in poker because no one's paying for our buy-ins. We don't have sponsorship deals. Most of us don't have sponsorship deals paying for the buy-ins. Uh, if the TV producers would uh, pay for the players, then they could have more say in how the games work. But what's happened over the years is that the players have way too much power and tournament directors are at the mercy of the players. So that's why you see these ridiculously long structures because nobody wants to gamble and you see uh, late registration all the way up until halfway through day two in some tournaments, you can still buy in to the event if you want, because they're making money off of the, off of the talent. So if the players are the talent and they're setting the rules, so that's, that's really the problem is that the structure of the game is that you have to buy in to the tournaments with your own money. So, yeah, you really get into if we do what's best for television and the players don't like it and the players don't show up because they don't like it, then we don't have a TV show. I think the players will show up. 
Like, I think they'll complain and moan, but I think ultimately they will show up. Um, it, it, like, because that's just the nature of poker players, I think. Like, you know, go, go back to the Venetian and all the stuff they did and how hated the Venetian was as it relates to poker um, because of Sheldon and Black Friday and all that. And, you know, if the, if they felt the tournament was juicy, then they showed up and they played. And, like, ultimately that's that's what that's the driver the driving force as to whether or not they reg a tournament or not so like in my opinion if you do it and it, people complained about the big blind ante like really hard <laughs> they're like no we don't want to do that like why consolidate all the antes to like one person in the big blind? That's we don't like this change. But now it's like standard and everybody does it and everybody's happy with it. So I think just human beings don't like change, but we do need some change as it relates to the structure of these tournaments, just so that they're more fun, more enjoyable, and everybody has a better experience. And it's better for TV, right? Because TV magnifies exposure. Like TV gets people thinking about poker. TV brings people into the poker world and it's very very important that people continue to do so because when, you know, that faucet gets turned off, less people are going to be entering the poker space and that's not a good thing for the long-term future of poker. Yeah, uh, but players have not resisted change over the years. They've demanded change over over the years. Like you and I remember when the World Series of Poker you would get the same number of chips as the buy-in. So if you played a $1,500 tournament, you'd start with 1,500 chips and the blinds would be 25-25 for the first hour or whatever. Uh, and then players were like, well, I want to have more chips. I want to have a deeper stack. And they make every single change the players cry out for. We want a flatter payout structure. We don't want first place to be that different from second, third, and fourth. Uh, we want more players paid so we can reduce our variance because a lot of us are playing over our heads in pursuit of a bracelet and changes were made and made and made when maybe some things were better before but you do have a good point there about the big blind ante there was a lot of resistance at first and players especially uh not liking how at the final table the big blind seemed like you know if you're down to five players and you're still putting in such a huge ante you know, can't we reduce the ante at the final table? And they tried, and I think some places are still doing like a, some kind of variation to give you more, more play at the end of a tournament. But there always used to be plenty of play at the end of tournaments because players were generally more aggressive earlier. You know, we can't have everything. You guys want longer levels and you want deeper stacks and you want to be able to wait for the nuts all the time. Less vig. Right, Lesvig, but you want the but you want the tournament over in one day. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. Yeah. You know, something's got to give on some end. So, uh, I think listening to the players is not always uh, going to be what's best for the end consumer, which would be like the the poker go subscriber or the you know the guy sitting at home trying to watch the the poker game on ESPN or something. You know, after two minutes of nothing happening. He's going to see what else is on, and that's just that's just how it is. I think that the customer doesn't really see all of the costs that are in play here. You know, longer tournaments, deeper stacks equals longer tournaments equals more administrative costs. You've got to pay your dealers more. Um, it's just a higher cost for the tournament, which equals higher VIG. Like, 
there's a lot of things that are connected here that I don't think like most poker players really think about behind the scenes that are in play. So yeah, like let's, I, I think that there's a way to do what's good for the game and please everybody at the same time. Um, it, it's probably having the directors and the players and some high level players too, who genuinely care about the game and thinking deeply about these problems and then coming up with some kind of solutions. Yeah, for sure. And I agree with you, by the way, a point you made a, a little while ago, uh, you know, telling people they can't talk to each other, taking kind of the gamesmanship out of the game. I think there's a difference between someone trying to get a read on someone else and someone just being a jerk like Will Kasuf. You know what I mean? It's, it's not yeah. all the same and it should be up to the professionals the guys in a tie who are walking around uh, to be able to figure out which players are just having some banter at the table, bringing a human element to the game, which is good, especially for a televised event to not have a bunch of robots, robot computers who have memorized every GTO chart, but you know, are just like watching paint dry on TV. Uh, there's a balance between, between that and, people being able to to have a conversation at the table you know there's a a pretty well-known hand that that i played against a, a a player from sweden where there was quite a bit of talking and he he was trying to get a read on me and i told him i'm an actor and you know it was during the uh 2018 main event and they captured all of this on tv and i think it was you know watching it later i think it was pretty compelling television because I basically had the nuts and I was trying to get this guy to call, but he was asking me a bunch of questions. And so I was trying to act a little bit nervous. I was laughing a lot. I was, I, and I mentioned to him that I'm a, a trained actor, which I think really got in his head. like, oh, I don't want to get bluffed on television. And that's to me, that's what live poker is. It's not just, oh, which one's the best at folding his way from getting a 39th place finish to a 35th place finish. Nobody at home wants to watch that. They want to watch somebody get inside somebody else's head. And that's, that's really missing nowadays. For sure. Negranu wanted it a long time ago. I believe it was Negranu just being able to like on the river, if it's a heads up pot, like, and somebody jams and you know, you're nearing the top of your range and it's a pretty tough decision. Like just saying like, Hey man, or Hey there. Like, do you know that I, do you know what I have? Like I actually have this hand and like, you just turn it up and it's like, you're trying to make me fold aces here. Like, and, and just having that sort of gamesmanship and discussion. And like, I think it would be very, very compelling. I think that like, it brings an added layer, uh, an added psychological layer to the viewer's experience. It's just more fun for the poker players when that's like an option. And in play, like you said, it's like the game within the game, which is something that I think, most poker players enjoy playing anyway. And the reality is like, if somebody doesn't want to see, they can just turn their head or close their eyes or whatever and not respond. Like they don't have to, <laughs> they don't have to like engage in the gamesmanship um, attempt. But like, I, I do think that it would make poker just way more watchable and way more fun. Like I, I would enjoy watching poker if, you know, we had some more situations like that and like, yeah, the whole, the Kasuf thing, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's not what I'm talking about at all, right? Like, that's just, 
harassment more than anything. Yeah, uh, harassment and slowing the game down and yeah. that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a way to have fun at the table without making everyone miserable. And that's kind of got to be where the line is. Now, I, I get that it's subjective and maybe one person's this is fun is another person's this is hell, <laughs> right? I get mm-hmm. that. But, I mean, they could still even err on the side of if some of the players are annoyed, then we need to cut that out. But yeah, starting off with the rule that we can't talk or we can't show our cards, you're telling me that I want to give away free information and I'm not allowed to? Like That's a problem. Yeah, that it is. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I loved the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about boot camp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your bootcamp experience? The most interesting thing about the bootcamp, it's a pre-flop bootcamp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post-game as it did for my pre-game, just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the bootcamp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. 
If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Bootcamp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. We got, we went on a tangent. Let's got to go back to, <laughs> to your journey, right? Like, so, you know, you entered the world of stand up. Was poker a, a part of your, your life throughout the whole, that whole period? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I live in New York City and have for many years. Uh, I wanted to be able to make some extra money without getting a job as a waiter or a receptionist or a babysitter, or whatever the kind of jobs that a lot of actors get. To pay bills nowadays, I guess the modern equivalent is a lot of actors in LA drive Uber or, or whatever. Um, but I wanted to try to exploit my talent. So uh, as I was trying to learn the ropes in stand-up comedy, uh, I used to travel on weekdays on the bus to Atlantic City. And I would play at the Trump Taj Mahal where they used to have a $65 nightly tournament that would get like five or 600 players. <laughs> Dear yeah, Lord. yeah. Every night. Um, this is before the Borgata even existed, just to give an idea of how far back we're going here. Um, and, and that tournament was, was great. I mean, some nights I won that tournament several times. And I remember like you show up in Atlantic city with like literally $65 in your pocket, you play the tournament, you go home with like $5,000, which, you know, is kind of unbelievable today because the uh, market saturation and, just general lack of interest in poker. Uh, any $65 tournament in Atlantic city is going to have like an $800 prize pool. <laughs> you know, it's just not going to be, uh, I mean, $800 first place prize, maybe if you're lucky, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like a sit so, and go. It's a yeah, single it's table like, sit and go. Yeah, yeah. It's more like that. So, uh, you know, and that's not knocking them. It's just, it's a different time right now. I mean, this was the poker boom. And so I engaged in the poker boom, uh, by playing, some low stakes live tournaments in Atlantic city. And actually one of them ended up really helping my, my poker career. Uh, I was sitting next to this big fat guy, uh, at the table. He was very, uh, you know, jovial. Do you very... mean your, your standup career? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. What did okay. I say? Poker you said your career. poker career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sometimes I get them confused even while I'm talking about them. <laughs> there's so much overlap, Brad. Uh, yeah. So there's this big fat guy next to me. He's very jovial, really outgoing. And uh, we were talking and laughing together and he goes, man, you're, you're pretty funny. You know that? And I was like, wow, that, you know, I really appreciate that, sir, because uh, I'm actually an aspiring comedian. So for you to say that I'm funny is, uh, is quite a compliment. So thank you. And he said, you're not going to believe this. But I am Al Martin. I own the Improv in New York. So I met the owner of the Improv, which is, was the biggest comedy club or one of the biggest comedy clubs in the city uh, at the poker table. And after I ended up busting him out of that tournament. But he was a really good sport about it. I, I made a joke. I was like, was that just the worst career move ever? Like me beating you in this tournament? He's like, no, as a matter of fact, here, I'm going to give you my number. Um, if you're starting in poker, uh, I'll tell you what, you give me a call. I mean, you're starting in comedy. See, I did it again. You're starting <laughs> out in comedy. You give me a call. Uh, I can help you out with your comedy career if you are willing to help me out with my poker career. So he asked me basically to be his coach in exchange for comedy favors. 
And then uh, about a year later, uh, he won his first ever seniors tournament and he gave me all the credit. And then a little while after that, something started in New York called the Clayton Fletcher show. <laughs> that was basically <laughs> a direct result of that friendship that I struck at the poker table, which kind of tells you guys, like if you have any like ambition at all, take your earphones out and talk to your neighbors at the table. You never know who you're sitting with. And so, yeah, that's uh, one of my favorite stories because it all just came from uh, having fun at the table and making this guy laugh and him being able to recognize that I had comedy talent and poker talent and he wanted to kind of exploit both of them. And that was more than fine with me. So, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sure it didn't take you very long to say, hell yeah, sign me up. I'm in. Um, yeah. I mean, it was the break I was looking for because you know, I, I didn't, I was trying to make a name for myself. I mean, I was a little bit known as an actor, but uh, you know, in comedy, I was a, a absolute nobody. I was really just going to open mics and trying to get my feet wet and learn the ropes. So to have this guy who like owns a comedy club, uh, kind of take me under his wing and help me out. It was a, a huge, uh, jumpstart to my comedy career. Yeah, and I'm sure if you tried to get contact with him, it would have been very, very difficult in pretty much any other setting <laughs> other than sitting directly next to them at a poker table. Yeah, I would have no chance. Like, he would never have answered my calls at that point. But Yeah, he uh, probably yeah. would have had to go through like two or three people just to even get a, a meeting or conversation with him. Yeah, and I, honestly, you probably wouldn't even get one. There are just so many comedians uh, a lot of these club owners don't really have time to deal with like the new guys, even no matter how talented or hungry I might've been, it would just in New York city, it would have been impossible for me to stand out to him unless it was in that other setting where, uh, you know, I stood out because he said, look, I can tell you're way better at this than I am. And I can help you with that. So why don't we, uh, develop a mutually beneficial friendship? And I, I'm actually still friends with him. No, years and years later. So there you go. There you go. It's a one plus one equals five type of situation. Absolutely. That's right. Um, so after, you know, you you leveraged your poker skills to land the Clayton Fletcher comedy show. What happened next? Uh, where did where did the world of poker and comedy take you after that? Yeah. So uh, at that time, I was a big fan of Poker Road Radio featuring Joe Stapleton, who's been a guest on both this podcast and my podcast, Tournament Poker Edge. Uh, so I was a, a big fan of that, and I wanted to get into the podcasting space. And I ended up meeting uh, Joe Seabach, who ran Poker Road. And that was in, in Vegas, maybe sometime around 2010, I want to say, 2009, 2010. And we were talking about possibly... Uh, having me start a podcast for them. And then it was basically signed, sealed, delivered, and then Black Friday happened and Poker Road ceased to exist. So I was right there. I was about to be a poker podcast ho host. I had big dreams for what I was going to be able to do, uh, promoting poker and making it fun and funny. And, you know, I had all these ideas and then they just kind of came crashing down on me at the same time uh i became friends with lee jones when he was at cake poker and he and i started working together and i was uh 
they didn't really have sponsored pros. They had a couple, but I wasn't a sponsored pro of cake poker, but I did have kind of an ambassadorship with them. Uh, in one year, I won three satellites on that no longer existent website. Uh, one for the main event at the World Series, one for a $1,500 side event at the World Series, and one that I'll never forget for a charity event at the Playboy Mansion in California. So I got to go play in this charity event with all these celebrities. I mean, Kardashians were there. Uh, let's see, like Tara Reid was there. Rihanna was there. Like all these like super famous people and me. I got to play at the same table <laughs> as uh, Shannon Elizabeth and Brody Jenner, which was surreal <laughs> to say the least. Um, I ended up final tabling that and winning. Uh, I got, I think, fourth place, third, third or fourth place. Uh, Jeff Madsen was also at that final table. Uh, I won a uh, guitar that I still have, a beautiful guitar with the Playboy logo on it, and uh, it's autographed by Hugh Hefner and six Playmates of the Year. So that's one of my prized possessions, one of my few poker trophies, if you will. So, And that kind of put me on the map a little bit, and people started to uh, you know, get a sense of, of who I was a little bit. I got some publicity from that and, and all that. So I started to realize that, as hard as it is to become famous in comedy just because there are so many terrific comedians, uh, the number of poker players with personalities is kind of small. <laughs> <laughs> so this seemed like a better path. So I started pursuing that. And I started write, writing articles for like Bluff Magazine and Card Player and uh, 2 Plus 2 Magazine. And the one that kind of put me on the map because it got retweeted by a lot of celebrity players like Antonio and Daniel and other people that only need one name was about women in poker and how we can make poker more accessible and, and more uh, attractive to women because the main event gets like a 3% female. Uh, and that's, that's just not enough. You know, we need to do a better job of marketing the game to women. So it started a conversation about feminism in poker and whether we owe it to women to treat them differently, or if they're going to play a man's game, they got to learn how to sit with the big boys and, uh, a lot of back and forth on Twitter and, and interacting with that article. And then some people who may not have known who I was, that was kind of their first introduction to me. And depending on which side you were, I was either a, an ally or a, a cuck. <laughs> so, <laughs> you can <Yeah>. take your choice. <laughs> Very strong opinion um, yeah. either way. Yeah. I, I think that that's, it's such a worthy topic of discussion and one that you know i've had many times with female and male guests on on this show is just how to bring more women into the game how to make it just a more accessible uh experience for everybody and yeah tell me what what did that article entail like what was what are the kind of highlights yeah so the the thrust of the article is that you know, the idea, the first idea that needs to be accepted is that not all women are the same, okay? And that some women would appreciate kind of the uh, overt masculinity that we see so often at the poker table, uh, tough guy talk, um, you know, abrasive or profane language. And some women are totally on board with that. And those are not the women that I'm talking about, okay? They're already here. They're already playing with us. I'm not trying to attract those women because they're already playing poker, okay? But we do need to acknowledge that you can't write an article that's like, this is what chicks like. 
<laughs> and also yes. call yourself an ally, right? It just doesn't work that way. But as far as attracting women that might not be as comfortable in that environment, there are certain things we can do. Like, number one, even though we are at war, we don't need to have like a bellicose kind of uh, aggressive stance at all times. Uh, the, the tough talk, uh, telling each other off, I think generally speaking, again, let's underline that, generally speaking, women are turned off by that. And it might make them want to say, a woman who's in a casino and might be trying poker for the first time, when she sees that behavior, she might say, you know what, slots are more fun. I'm just going to go play slots and, and never come back to the poker room again. So our one and only chance to uh, have her join our community has been lost because you two guys wanted to uh, have a pissing contest at the table. And, and she felt uncomfortable. Number two, this is pretty basic, but it's happened to me enough that I felt like including it in the article. Just take care of your body, you know, like take a shower, use deodorant, like basic hygiene is not as important to men as it is to women because women scientifically proven, they have 70% more olfactory senses. So their noses are 70% stronger than ours. A lot of guys don't know this. Um, so what you might think that you smell fine, if you don't, she knows it, even though maybe you don't know it. So, you know, just take care of yourself, be presentable at the table, <laughs> you know, like these are kind of the basic things. Like we're acting like cavemen and then women show up and they're like, oh God, it was horrible. These guys were cursing at each other, threatening to step outside and they smelled terrible. So if that's what she's experiencing, do you think she's going to want to come back the next day? Or is she more likely to just say, you know, I'm going to go hang out by the pool, get some drinks and, and, you know, just poker. I tried it. It's, it's not for me, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, man. It, it's you know, what's most unfortunate about, about that is that, I mean, a it's hilarious, um, to say, yeah, take a shower and put on deodorant <laughs> before you go play cards. I mean, th this is like such an obvious thing that like, <laughs> it, it's, it's funny that, you know, you had to spell it out. Um, but secondarily, I, I think that like the lower stakes games in general are the worst to play in as it relates to the behavior of the players. Like if you're playing one, two, you're much more likely to get berated than if you're playing 10, 20, right? It's just, that's the nature of the different games. Like I went years without getting berated and then I played in one, one, two game one time and got berated like three times in an hour for, because, you know, players, uh, Dunning-Kruger effect is in play where they just dramatically overestimate their ability when they're sitting there playing one, two, and then they feel obligated to get angry and call you a fish and tell you exactly how you messed up playing. And yeah, it just creates a miserable experience. So like, that's what's that. The unfortunate thing is like, that behavior happens way more at the smaller stakes, which is like the entry point to a lot of folks as it relates to, you know, their poker journey. But yeah, it's, it's a problem that I think that like when it is solved or cracked or whatever it is, like when the branding changes, uh, Sasha Sutton came on the podcast a few months back and was saying that like all the branding in poker is masculine all the vernacular and the language crushers and destroyers and all this stuff. I'm certainly as guilty as anybody, but all that vernacular is very masculine. Right. And I think these are just sort of subtle things that, that could change that, um, 
could really make an impact. Yeah, well, it used to be even more so. I mean, I think poker has has tried to be a little bit more inclusive, but they, they haven't done enough uh, generally. But, you know, used to have, uh, <laughs> I remember my first few years going to the Rio in the summer and they'd have like, you know, basically girls in bikinis and high heeled shoes walking around promoting this website or that website. This is all pre black Friday. And you'd see kind of this, uh, you go to like the full tilt poker summer party and it would just be like all these professional bikini models everywhere. And just, you're kind of creating almost like a, Hey, the poker lifestyle means you get basically what Dan Bilzerian has now is kind of what they were selling uh, back then. And, you know, that might be appealing to a 22 year old uh, kid who's had some success on party poker or whatever, but you know, for the women, they might feel like, Oh, so this isn't really for us. And, and you don't really want them to, to feel that way. I'm not saying that no woman can appreciate a beautiful girl in a bikini. I know plenty of women who can, that's not my point. It just doesn't feel like uh, it's a it's a fair a level playing field. I'm also, and this is a little bit more controversial, but I'm also against last woman standing. Uh, I think if we really want to be equal, we shouldn't make such a big deal about uh, you know giving some kind of special honorary mention to the girl who lasted the longest with the boys, when really it's an equal game of you know, we don't break down into, we don't say like the last Filipino standing or the last transgender person standing. Like it's really the only subcategory that we make such a big deal about. And everyone's cheering for that, for that woman, like, oh, good for you, honey. You got 83rd place, you know, or whatever. It just kind of feels a little bit, there's a subtle misogyny to that even when it's a, it's a mind sport. So who cares what genitals the person who got 83rd place has? You know, so, uh, and I know that there are some arguments on the other side. Well, you know, last woman standing is good for the game because it gives the women another uh, incentive to try to, you know, gain that title. And it's like, but to me, it's kind of like Miss Congeniality at the Miss Universe pageant. No girl wants that title. You want the championship bracelet. That's what you're playing for. Not to be like some kind of uh, a little pat on the head honorary mention <laughs> yeah yeah it's like yeah right it's, yeah it's like honorable mention it's like oh but you know you didn't win but you did get this and i mean i don't know if a, if a woman can parlay that into a sponsorship deal or i don't know some other kind of financial or or visibility benefit then maybe they wouldn't want it taken away but i think in the big picture we need to stop thinking in terms of men versus women boys versus girls and just say look we're all playing the same game this isn't tennis. We don't need to separate uh, men from women. That said, I, I'm not as against like an all women's tournament because you don't have those problems uh, that we men create for women so often in, <laughs> yes. an, in an all female tournament. So if that can be like the only tournament she plays all year, that's fine. But hopefully uh, we guys can take responsibility for making that same woman who shows up for the ladies event comfortable also playing in maybe like the seven o'clock deep stack or the you know the the two hundred dollar bounty event whatever it is so that she's there for this but she ends up playing that as well and when she does she doesn't regret it in the first five minutes so yeah i mean i think that the thrust of my article is that it's up to men 
to stand up and make this world better for women unless you guys are happy with 3% turnout. If you don't think there's a problem and you don't want to change anything and you think poker's a man's sport, then you don't really mind that only 3% of the players are women. But to me, I just think there's a huge untapped market out there and we need to uh, try to address that in a better way than we have. We've been talking about this for years and years and really nothing substantial has, has changed. We do have more female commentators than we used to, which I guess is good, but it, it just feels a little hollow overall. I agree. Uh, like there's, there's obviously a lot of room for growth and there's a lot of opportunity there. And yeah, it's the best argument for having, you know, a, a women's event is that there's no men. <laughs> That's the draw. <laughs> there's no men to ruin the experience. Right. Um, yeah. which I, I think is, is ultimately a good thing because like, as I come to learn more about, about our gender, yeah, we're, we're kind of problematic. We, we do some pretty not good things out of yeah. the world. Um, yeah. And you know, guys like you and me, Brad, we, we're aware of it and we probably do better than some of the other guys out there. Like, and I'm, I'm I want to be really clear. I'm sure that most of your listeners are men. I'm not saying 97%. That, actually, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Which is about right. <laughs> if you look at the main event, it's about the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that's just the ratio of people who will be attracted to poker is going to be 97% of the people I don't that think are so. attracted to poker. Yeah, I really don't think so. But I, I'm willing to I'm willing to admit that the possibility exists. But I think we can probably get that number a little higher if we did a few things differently. But Brad, I do want to say, and I feel like I, I need to say this. I don't feel that masculinity itself is necessarily toxic. I think that we men can evolve as we have. We're no longer cavemen dragging our knuckles on the ground. We've evolved and evolved and evolved. And this is just the next step in our evolution is that we need to realize that if we want to attract more women to the game, you have to make the game more attractive to women, period. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong about a competitive spirit, competitive nature. But whenever somebody tells me that they're highly competitive, the first thing that pops in my head is, oh, they're a horrible loser. Like, <laughs> that That's my association. I'm highly competitive. Oh, that means that when you lose, you turn into a baby and throw a fit <laughs> and you can't handle it, right? Yeah, I hate um, losing. Okay, no one likes losing, but it's like handling it gracefully and, yeah. and just being a respectful human. Is it now, you know, you and I have a mutual friend. I know he's been a, a guest on, on your podcast. And uh, before I have to go, I wanted to make sure I mention uh, Anton Wig. He is uh, a dear friend of mine. I met him in Australia uh, right before I was traveling to Sweden. And it, that's so crazy because I'm all the way on the other side of the world. And he said, well, when you come to Sweden, stay with me. And I did. And we've been friends ever since. Uh, we met at a comedy show that I did during the Aussie Millions that I think Tony Dunst invited him to, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, I had a, I had a VIP A-list of uh, poker players in my comedy audience out there in Australia. That was a pretty unforgettable night. But yeah, Anton is a great role model. If you guys haven't listened to the episode of this podcast where Brad interviews Anton, you know, Anton is one of the wisest guys I've ever met. He understands balance. He understands respect. And he understands discipline. I've never met anyone more disciplined than he is. So, yeah, he's been someone that, that I've met through poker that has affected my poker in tremendous ways. He's kind of like a mentor to me in poker, but also in life. 
which might sound odd because he's a lot younger than we are, <laughs> but he just knows so much about so much. And he's someone that has really uh, had a tremendous impact on me. Absolutely. So as of, as of today, which the release of this episode, Clayton, is going to be a few months from now because we've been hitting the podcast interviewing circuit pretty hard as of late. But Anton's been on the show twice now. Uh, one will have been released as the listener is listening to this episode. The other one is, uh, you know, one of the early episodes is Chasing Poker Greatness. But speaking of connection, like Anton's just a guy that when you interact with him, you talk to him, you connect. You know, he, he enjoys connection. He enjoys philosophizing. He enjoys deep discussions. And because of that, uh, it's my intent that he's going to be a recurring guest on Chasing Poker Greatness for the foreseeable future, just because it's always, I always learn something new when I'm having a conversation with Anton. It's just so enjoyable. And, and he's just such an asset to really the poker community at large. He's kind of one of the unsung heroes, in my opinion. Um, in the game today and yeah just a, an amazing amazing human being well it's actually a big compliment to you as well brad because i know anton is not uh a guy to go on every podcast he's not he doesn't do a ton of interviews so uh, if he if he comes on your podcast not once but twice then uh <laughs> maybe even more than that then you know that that just says a lot about what he thinks about you as well so congrats i i appreciate that clayton that that means a lot um, and I know that you got you got a busy life doing all the things that you do in, in Clayton World. So with that said, we're going to go ahead and start wrapping up. And then we'll do another multiple conversations down the road because, yeah, we, we only got to the first question of the story of you playing cards. We didn't get into... <laughs> We didn't get into your website at all, which reminds me of like Space Jam back in 1995. <laughs> you got a link to MySpace on your website, Clayton. Yeah. I think we, <laughs> I think I think it could stand a little refreshing. Oh, it's just a joke at this point. I mean, it's like the original <laughs> website, and you know, uh, my brother does the uh, design for my website, and obviously, uh, MySpace was a thing when that site was invented. And uh, he's asked me several times, "Do you want me to take down the MySpace link?" And I'm like, "No." No, no, don't don't ever take down the MySpace <laughs> link. I want I want it to be there in thirty years because uh, it's definitely a conversation starter, as you just saw. <laughs> yeah, I loaded it up and I was like, "Is this like the, is GeoCities still a thing? This looks like GeoCities." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know the funny thing though, uh, you know, I used to get twelve, fifteen hundred hits a month to my website, and nowadays people just don't use websites. I mean, nowadays. If people want to find me, they find me on social media. Uh, websites for comedians are kind of, uh, I guess they're still necessary in the sense that that's where my bio is. But otherwise, no one really uses the website like they used to. Before social media, having a website was super important. Now it's like the only thing anybody ever wants from my website is uh, a link to my Twitter or obviously my MySpace, which, by the way, is going strong you're my top eight brad <laughs> you've got many you got many <laughs> connections so that that is very much an honor being yeah. in your top eight clayton yeah but mostly they just go there to get the bio or maybe some photos but yeah you can get everything you need um on my twitter which is clayton comic if anyone's interested in following uh yeah i talk about comedy and poker not surprisingly so 
30% of my audience has no idea what a top eight or MySpace is. <laughs> I can guarantee that much. Um, they were barely a- alive in the MySpace days. <laughs> a precursor to uh, Facebook, put it that way. <laughs> yes, precursor. Imagine this. You could do whatever you wanted. You could change your background <laughs> color. You could make your your text color any color that you wanted, and you could have your own song that you stole from somebody and put it on your website. Uh, I know that like my fit, my MySpace song was Soul Meets Body. Um, and That's that tells awesome. You, like when it, when <laughs> that was around, uh, it was actually superior in every way to Facebook, but somehow Facebook won the battle. Similar to Betamax in the old days. Also, your listeners won't remember this, but there used to be something called a VCR. You had to <laughs> pop a, a, a cassette into the VCR to watch a movie on your TV, not just like go into your phone and pick any movie ever made ever and watch it in the next five seconds. Uh, but in the old days, we used to have to get you know recordings of videos and pop them in. There was a, the VHS ended up winning the battle, but Betamax, which was a Sony product, was actually superior in every single way to the VHS, but somehow similar to Facebook, one technology wins over the others, often if the winning technology is somehow inferior. Yes, and I think that the running theme in this conversation is just how old we are. Um, talking about people <laughs> not remembering VHS, which means like they don't—they probably don't even remember like Blockbuster or like. Oh man, it, it's <laughs> now I feel I feel especially old um, <laughs> as we're closing up shop here. <laughs> um uh, just embrace it brad you know we, we have experience that they don't <laughs> we do we we have experience we we got in trouble for not rewinding our vhs's and we got to experience the pure rage of popping in a vhs and the person who rented it before not rewinding it for you um so yeah, yeah there's a can, fine for that there was a fine for that um <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Uh, what, what's a project that you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart? Yeah, so I've actually been working on something for GG Poker with Kevin Martin. Many of you will know Kevin. Uh, we're working on a project. It's it's in the works. It's not out yet, but we're kind of doing a uh, comedy poker project with him, which may actually be on the market by the time this podcast is released. But yeah, Kevin Martin, he's a big uh, Twitch streamer. He's also a Big Brother winner from Canada. Uh, for the Canadian version of Big Brother, he won one of the seasons of that. And he's also a fantastic and very entertaining poker player as well. So uh, he and I are working on producing some entertainment for uh, the site that sponsors him, which is ggpoker.com. And, uh, you know, just have a lot of comedy gigs coming up and Looking forward to the fall in Vegas, uh, playing some live poker. This fall is going to be nice because it's uh, it's been a long time, and I really missed having a World Series last year. So um, I'm excited for what remains of 2021. Yes, me too, and I'll see you at the WSOP. The link to the comedy stuff, does it have a name with Kevin Martin? Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say yet. But okay. maybe by the time this comes out, it's going to be public domain. But yeah, if you just look for Kevin Martin uh, on YouTube, uh, you should see us doing our silly th stuff there. Cool. And we'll add it to the show page so the listener can click through straight from there to check that stuff out. 
uh, final question, man. Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness listener find you on the World Wide Web? Yeah, I'm on every type of social media platform, whether it's YouTube or TikTok. whether it's Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, MySpace, <laughs> Snapchat, you name it, Clayton Comic. And uh, I, I always love interacting with, with poker players, poker fans, especially if they happen to like comedy. So uh, check me out, at Clayton Comic. I really appreciate it. All right, man. All, all those links will be in the, the show notes as well, including the TikTok click-through and the throwback website with the MySpace. <laughs> I, I'm sure I, I've piqued some people's curiosity, and they'll be checking out your website um, when this Geo drops. Cities, baby, for the win. GeoCities <laughs> for the win. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, brother. We'll we'll do this again in the near future and you know, ask you some some more questions and catch up. It's been great. Thank you for your time and your energy. And uh have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, Brad. And I promise I won't answer those questions either. So I look forward awesome. to the next one. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter, join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.